I think the mission is really about changing people's experience with healthcare, making it more accessible, making it more transparent, and making it not a frustrating and frustrated experience for people. Welcome to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast, where IT and digital leaders from around the world talk about their careers, their inspiration, and their vision for the future of digital business. I'm your host, David Wright. The world of digital business is evolving faster than ever, and I want this to be a place where digital business champions create a village to band together and help each other navigate the ever-changing terrain. Disruptive Innovators features conversations with CIOs and digital leaders from around the world, diving into their personal backstory, career, their current role, trends they've been seeing, and their vision for the future, personally, professionally, and otherwise. This podcast is made for people who are seeing how quickly the digital business landscape is evolving. Those who recognize that it takes a village of trusted advisors to navigate this ever-changing terrain. People who enjoy listening to high-level discussions surrounding what it means to be a leader, real-world examples of challenges faced, and industry-specific strategies leveraged to create exceptional business outcomes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net. Good afternoon, friends. David Wright here, and I am your host of the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. And today I am joined by Isaac Turner. Isaac, how's it going, my friend? Hi, great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So Isaac, for those of our listeners who don't know, can you tell everyone a little bit about your current role? I'm one of the co-founders and CTO at Curative which is a startup founded in 2020 to initially as a biotech company. But post-COVID, we've pivoted and launched a health plan based in Austin, Texas. Very cool. So Isaac, I'll look forward to learning a little bit more about what you guys are up to at Curative. But before we get into that, and really before we get into a little bit about your backstory as an executive, what's one piece of actionable advice you might look to leave our listeners with today? I'm not sure I'm best positioned. You know, I'm sure you've got some listeners who could probably teach me a lot. But the thing that I've learned in my career so far that's been most important is every time you work with people, leave them thinking well of you. That's a long way of saying be nice to people. And I think the reason that's been so important for us is a lot of curative success and my success has been in building relationships that we can call on later. And so it might be how you turn down a vendor and say you don't want to work with them, or how you turn down a candidate and you say they've not got the role. You want to leave them thinking, I would love to call back from that guy. You want them thinking like, we didn't end up working together, but we'd love to, to work again in the future. And that's really, Curative has worked with a lot of people and being able to call on those people again and saying, we can do something really exciting, are you in? And then jumping on it really quickly or them referring to your friends has been huge. So it's about not burning bridges and being mindful of that, that you're trying to find win-win solutions with people you work with. Yeah, that's great advice. You know, it seems simple, but, you know, I tend to have a built-in forgetter where I need to 
rehear that stuff. And I do always like to say that I'm in the business of creating 30 year relationships, right? So how can I focus on, like you said, just, I mean, being a good, good person, right? And good people want to do business with good people and surround themselves with good people. So great advice. So Isaac, let's talk a little bit about your backstory. So obviously you're a young guy, you're a co-founder of a really exciting organization and CTO. How did you start out and how did you get to the position that you're in today? I'm really interested to know. I started deep interest in computers, programming, and studied computer science. I really wanted to learn more about the ways that used to solve complex challenges and push the boundary of science. And that's where I went into the PhD in bioinformatics, which is a field that I originally didn't know very much about, but heard about, learned about through university and got really interested in developing algorithms to handle large amounts of data to pull out insights through statistical methods that just aren't obvious. And that was around genetics and looking at identifying differences between individuals. And there's so much data generated through things like whole genome sequencing. And it's quite noisy data as well, that some of the challenges that are really, really interesting. So I got deep into that and look, you know, after that, I really wanted to do something like so apply that in a way that I could see you know, realized value from it rather than just scientific insights, I think are fantastic and really enjoyable. I wanted to find ways to actually deploy that to make people's lives better. And that's where moving into biotech seemed like an obvious migration. I looked at the sort of the startup scene and you really have to come to America to do really interesting startup stuff, especially in biotech. And so I was very lucky to be able to find a startup in the Bay Area, San Francisco, I could join and do some genetics work with them. There aren't many roles in that industry. So I was very excited to find a startup that was doing interesting things. That startup ultimately failed, but we met some great people working there. And three of us decided to start Curative together in 2020. And I think that whole experience of going through challenges together, really understanding how to iterate quickly, seeing some strategic mistakes we'd made, and building a network of people in the area of clinical diagnostics and biotech set us up for a lot of success with curative. So that's how I got here. Yeah, I love it. You obviously had that experience with the failed startup, right? You gave some great advice to start at the show, some actual advice. But is there another thing, a really important thing, one of the most important things you might say that you learned over the course of your life personally and professionally and if so, what was life like before learning it and after learning it? I think the failed startup really is where I learned to iterate quickly and get a sort of minimal viable product or working prototypes and the value of doing that as early as possible. I think one of the mistakes we made was we came up with these plans for a system that would operate at scale and tried to build the very highly scaled version. And actually, we just didn't spend enough time doing the sort of the zero to one. Like, have you? run the whole system once if you got input to answer and working across a team with a very complex system to find the smallest thing you can build. And I think if that I'd learned that lesson a lot earlier, I would have probably got through my PhD faster. I probably would have tried a few companies working at a lot of different companies for short periods of time faster. Really just get in and learn by doing. I think it's something that took me a while to pick up. But once you've had that experience, it takes one person on a team to say, yeah, that's a great one-year plan, but how can we prototype it this week? 
what would the smallest prototype look like? Often people say, well, it's probably not going to be useful. And in fact, it always is. It always is. Let's figure out what we can do this, this week or this month. Sometimes it's this today. It's like pick up the phone and call a person and ask them. It's about a bias for action, I think. And these are things many people have written about. And I think it took me reading a couple of books around agile and bias for action, I think, really to hit home. And I think it's something that you really have to learn by seeing other people around you do it. You have to surround yourself with those kind of energy, energized people. But once you get in that time, that kind of team, it's infectious to be speeding up velocity and, and rate of learning by doing lots of little experiments very quickly. Yeah. And I think what you're describing too is really at the root of innovation. And because when we work with like in the healthcare provider space, right? You know, different business models, right? But we're still encouraging organizations, particularly some of the classic late adopters and not necessarily healthcare providers, financial services, whoever it might be, to develop that kind of attitude where you're, you know, it's overused, but failing fast, right? or succeeding fast. But in any case, you're trying something, you're iterating, like you said, integrating feedback, and then moving to the next step. And you're also, you're setting achievable benchmarks that you can hit and keep building on that momentum, right? So I I think that makes a ton of sense. So Isaac, what about your favorite book, either that you're reading now or all time? Dealer's choice. I would say have read would be the goal by Eli Goldratt. It's maybe not such a popular one with people today, but it gives the language around processes and bottlenecks that I think is so valuable. One of the things, obviously, curative being a COVID testing business, very much like a factory and there are bottlenecks and the bottleneck moves around as you try and scale up. There is a nice mapping between the language and the goal and the challenges we had in early years for curative scale-up COVID testing. And I'd read that a couple of years before we started curative. And I think that was really, really helpful. And the concept, to put it very simply, in any process, there is a limiting factor. And the entire company's job is today to identify that limiting factor and to all work on that. That is everyone's number one priority. doesn't matter if you scale up other parts of the process. There's always one limiting factor and working anywhere else doesn't make sense. Obviously, once you fix that bottleneck, you uncover a new bottleneck, it moves. And so some teams might be thinking ahead, but you don't want to be thinking too far ahead. You really want to be all on the same page as a company, as a small startup about what your limiting factor is and understanding that if any team can help on that, that is the way they should help. And so a curative that looked like at one point hiring was a limiting factor. So we're all trying to advertise and to recruit people and trying to keep HR really focused on that function and not trying to distract them, taking things off their plate. At other points, it might be that one of the steps in the lab was slow. And then the question is, do you throw more people at it or do you use software to make the process a bit faster? But the way we applied what we learned in the goal was every day we'd have a meeting, we'd look at the data and say, where do we believe the bottleneck is? That was hugely important and something we've carried on to projects we've done beyond that. So the goal, fantastic. It's really well written. It's written as a fiction book that uncovers these concepts in sort of everyday life and really explains, you know, breaks them down, explains them from first principles. Excited to check that out. So have you ever read the Phoenix Project? Yes. Yeah, just the bottleneck. 
it got me thinking about that. That's a great book. One of my favorites too. I know it's DevOps related, but I apply it to a number of different things. I think in that book, the main character references having read the goal and applying some of the concepts because it's the same. It's very similar. So Isaac, let's talk about curative. So talk to me and and to our listeners about your and and your co-founders vision for the organization. And I know that's kind of changed over time. So walk us through what that looks like today. Well, we learned a lot scaling up COVID testing. We went from three founders, four employees in January, or it was like until March, 2020, when we decided we could help out in COVID testing. So we put on pause what we were doing and scaled up. And by the end of the year, we were 7,000 staff. And I think in scaling from seven to 7,000, going through what many companies go through in 10 years, in nine months, launching a second very successful program, which was beyond COVID testing, we launched a vaccination program. Ultimately, we tested over 36, did over 36 million COVID tests. Our vaccination program immunized over 2 million doses. So we found things that we found that we can meet a need and we scaled up very quickly. In doing that, we learned just an absolute ton about what it means to build a really strong team, to move really quickly, about delivering healthcare at scale. And because we had such so many people going through our process, we had a really strong feedback loop. If you added a second language on your homepage, if you moved a button, if you add an extra step to a, a workflow, we got 10,000 people through that flow every day. And so we got really strong feedback. We learned a lot about what it meant to make a smooth healthcare experience that people really value. And we also really learned about what they hated about how they had been received. Why were they coming to curative company that didn't exist a year before for an essential service? Because their needs weren't being met or they weren't getting healthcare delivered in a way that was appropriate for them. They weren't being met where they were in their community and having their needs. Someone really obsessing around how do we build the right experience for these people. So we learn also about the whole payer infrastructure and how fraught the relationship can be between providers and payers and how complex and confusing the system can be to patients, to people. So coming out of COVID, I think we really wanted to do something bold. I think we had a great opportunity. We built a big company through COVID and learned a lot. And it was an opportunity, sort of once in a lifetime opportunity, we didn't have to go and raise for a new venture. We could go and say, taking what we've got, what is the one problem in healthcare we'd love to attack? And there are lots of what you might call really good point solutions, people pick a disease, a condition, or a challenge that patients have and try and solve it. But the system as a whole doesn't reward people who come up with good solutions there. They have to go and pitch to payers. Payers are slow moving, risk averse, want to see a lot of data. They want the sure thing. And it's really hard for startups. Startups want to get something out quickly and iterate and build something great over time. It takes a while to get the data in a clinical trial showing that you've carefully measured anything and, and what you built saves the payer money long-term. So it's given that the system, and this was true in biotech as well with the clinical labs, there are lots of good lab startup companies and they struggle to make an impact on patients because if you build a new diagnostic test that's really great and runs in your lab, you can go through the FDA to get it so that other people can build a machine that other people can run and that can take a very long time with no guarantee of return. Or you could run it in your own lab and work with 
hospitals and doctors to order it, but they have to work with their electronic medical record system to connect it to your lab. And that vendor usually takes about eight months to do an integration. Then you have to train the doctors in ordering your new test, train them when is appropriate and how it's better and how to action the results. Okay, so then they order it. You have no communication with the patient. So it's entirely up to the doctor to hope you hope the doctor is communicating those results appropriately to the patient. And then you have to bill insurance and the insurance is just not going to pay for a new test. So you have to apply to get a new CT code or justification for this payment. And at the end of the day, there are so many people between you as a lab and making the patient's life better, health better, experience better, that you have to fight with. And they all work on timescales of a year or plus, year or more. And so it's very hard to get those first feedback loops going. And I think a lot of good companies come up, startups, if they can get through most many of those hurdles, survive long enough, they usually get to a point where they're running out funding and they sell to a large company. There's in the lab industry, it's LabCorp and Quest are the, the giants. And in, in the payer space, there's a few just very large payers that control the space. And there's not many big entrants in that space. It's none of these spaces are being disrupted because all the innovation is happening on small scale and without an opportunity to get really big. So with this opportunity that we're presented with, we really wanted to change the system. And we thought about different ways to really change how people interact with healthcare, if that was through primary care. And there's some people doing some interesting things there, one medical, carbon health, forward, things like that. Or if, we're gonna, if we could do something in the pair space or in the sort of the inpatient space. And we really realized that if you're the pair, you call the shots. You can really build a different system and you control so much of, of people's experience of healthcare from the pair perspective. If you look at sort of commercial space, large employers, they really only have four or five options where they get their insurance from. And there haven't been new entrants in that space in decades. So it takes a lot of capital to go into that space to show that you can take on the risk and underwrite the risk and to build out a lot of the infrastructure that's required to operate in that space. But Curative was in a very unique place where we had the right people, we had the right skill, we had the right experience, we had the capitals to do it. And so I think we thought that this is an experiment to change the insurance landscape. It was so unique that we've been given. And we've got a very bold, bold vision about the kind of care people should expect and should receive that no one else is going to take that risk. It had to be us putting our company on the line and saying that's a bet worth making, I would say. Guaranteed return. But I think if you really looking at the way healthcare is going in the US, I think it really pays out well for a lot of people. Like I think if you improve people's health, the downstream effects of that are just huge. That's a very long answer to, I think, a very short question. But I think the mission is really about changing people's experience with healthcare, making it more accessible making it more transparent and making it not a frustrating and frustrated experience for people. And it's interesting, like towards the tail end, like you mentioned, like helping getting people healthier, essentially, or improving the health of the public and kind of making it better. The interesting thing about the provider space is so often they're actually doing better when people are sicker. That's why I feel like this transition to value-based care, more on the provider side, right? is going to be so crucial in order to get kind of in alignment with exactly what you guys are doing, right? It's kind of sick. And I think one of the challenges with value-based care is, is a very complex thing and it has lots of different 
ways that people build it out. But obviously asking providers to take on the financial risk of the health of their panel, it aligns incentives and makes some sense, but also puts a lot of responsibility and thinking on providers who really just want to get their job done. And it also has, I think, in some systems, a way of locking patients into only working with one provider. Because if the patient can move around, then one provider can be held responsible for their long-term outcomes. And if they can't move around, it's a loss of freedom that I think ultimately leads, whether or not it reduces the quality of care, it leads to a perception of decreased quality in care. If I tell you, you can only see one doctor and I ask you like how good your healthcare is, you're going to be like, well, I don't have choice. And that's, I perceive it to be worse for that reason. So what I think we're trying to do is with the no copay, no deductible plan, we are saying we will take on the financial responsibility of your health. So we're on the hook for it. So now you and I, you as a member, curative insurance plan, we're aligned. We both want you to be healthy. And that's because you want to be healthy and we don't want the cost to get out, out of hand. And I think if you don't deal with healthcare issues today, if you don't get ahead of them, you will turn up in the ER on a Saturday night and we'll have a horrendously big bill. Short term, that's going to increase costs. Long term, we believe that it will significantly lower costs. And I think as part of that bargain, you're also saying you're going to engage in your care as well to get ahead of these issues. And that's where we have this baseline visit concept within the first 120 days, members have to engage in a preventative care visit so that we're both committing to address care issues early acts. Does the baseline visit affect the premium level that the person is you know, subject to? Imagine it would. If you do the baseline visit, you have no covays and no deductibles. You have 120-day grace period at the beginning of your year, so four months at the beginning of your year, to do that baseline visit with us. And if you don't do it, you get swapped onto a high-deductible plan. So it's basically like if you on this curative plan, you commit to do this, this visit. The visit really is about understanding what are your health goals for this year? What are you struggling? How can curative help you get the most out of your health care? Um, how do we pull down barriers? How do you get assigned a care navigator? And you might tell the care navigator, like, my primary care doctor never has appointments. We're like, okay, I'll take that. We'll go and make some phone calls. We'll find you a better one. It might be like, I thought I got a referral, but it didn't go through. I can't see a specialist. We're like, okay, we'll call around. We'll find where that referral went. We'll see if that appointment's available. We'll get you in there. Short term, yes, this is going to increase our costs because you will use more care in the short term. But we believe people don't want to be in doctor's offices their, their entire week. They've got other things to be doing. Really, our job is to empower members to be advocates for their own health and not to try and frustrate the process of seeking care, which I think is many of these hydrological plans, they see costs going up unsustainably, 7 to 10% year on year. 20% of the US economy is now healthcare, which is unsustainable. And one way they can reduce costs next year is by giving everyone a huge deductible and a huge copay and complex plan that they can't navigate. So they don't get care next year. And yeah, that'll decrease costs next year. But the year after that, all the things they put off are now coming back. And so you get stuck into this cycle of cranking up the costs that members have to pay and increasing that cost sharing for short-term reductions in utilization. But what you're not seeing is the increasing sort of health deficit that is growing there. I mean, last year, our premiums went up, our deductibles went up, our out-of-pocket max went up. They didn't tell us about the out-of-network 
benefits going up. They only showed us the in-network benefit summary because we have a PPO. And throughout last year, because we see some out-of-network specialists, and that's why we have the PPO, we must have had like 17 different bill inquiries, discrepancies. No one would have mentioned, no one would have brought up unless we brought it up, caught it, and then brought it up. So I was saying, like, when you mentioned having a navigator who's actually proactively advocating on my behalf, I mean, that's really cool to me. I mean, that's kind of like you said before. I mean, it's unheard of, really. Yeah, I think we're demoing a really different model. And we're only showing that this model can make sense. It's not just about removing copays. You cannot do that on your own, on its own. You have to help people navigate the plan. You have to make sure that they understand and have the support they need. And you have to make sure that they're equipped to get ahead of health issues. And preventative care, we, everyone knows, most cost-effective and efficient kind of care. It's the kind of care everyone should be getting. And actually, when you put a copay in place, what it incentivizes is, I will put off the early stuff. I won't pay $50. I'm going to put it off until you get the huge thing. And you're like, this is huge. I'll pay $50. This needs to be fixed. And so it really incentivizes deferral of care, which is, I think, a, a big problem. Our plan is a PPO as well. And I think helping people stay within the network, we have something like roughly a million providers across the US in our network. But you know, making sure people are able to find what they need in that network is an important part of it. So making sure they have the right digital tools, they have someone they can call, I think that's really important. What about some of the biggest challenges you're facing as a fairly young organization in this you know, new kind of payer game? either in regard to that or just as a whole? What are some of the biggest organizational challenges facing Curative today? I would say B2B sales are always hard. Um, and I think the, the sales cycle for health insurance is an, is an annual renewal. It's done through brokers to employers to members. And so really we serve the members, but the sales process goes through many people. It's a big expense for a company. So I think it makes sense that they they have a broker to advocate for them and help guide them through the process. So we need to make sure we're working with all those people, explaining to all of them the benefits and how the plan works. And so that's definitely a muscle that has to be built. And I think we're getting a lot of feedback from those those conversations. I think that's really helpful. So where are we not explaining the plan properly? Where Where should we change the plan? It's very different from what we were doing before which you know, is much faster and much more assurance. And I think the second one is healthcare data is very fragmented, very delayed, and very tricky to work with. As an example, if you want to list all the providers available, it's very hard to know which ones are accepting new patients, which ones changed their address recently, which ones are licensed to do different things. That kind of data, there's no central place where providers or facilities, make sure it's up to date. And what tends to happen is they send it through intermediaries in different formats and gets to you in many different formats and and try to cross-check many of these data sources to make sure that we are building the right tools, building the best tools we can to help members navigate care is tricky. And because the tools, many providers live within their EHR. And so when they're doing a prescription and sending it to a pharmacy, or they're sending a referral to a specialist, they're doing it within their tool. And there are specific things about our network, about which pharmacies are in network or which providers or specialists are in network 
that they don't necessarily have access to and making sure that members and providers are equipped with the best data we can get them, getting it in front of them so that they're referring to the right places for members, I think is, is a challenge. I think that's part of the fragmented nature of healthcare is that many people are operating without much information to make sure that the patients get the best care. So I think that's, I would say a challenge, and I think a challenge that we are approaching from multiple angles, one of which is building great tools for everyone involved, and the other is an education campaign, letting providers know what it means to have a member on curative plan, making sure members understand that they shouldn't be receiving a bill on our plan. And if they do, if they think they went in network, or they're not sure if someone's in network and they get a bill and they really understand why they need to reach out to us because providers accidentally bill sometimes incorrectly. It's mistakes happen. And I think getting in, inserting ourselves into that miscommunication between a provider and a member sometimes to help them resolve some of those issues, I think is, is important. It's crazy the way that the healthcare industry in the United States works today. It's great that companies like yours are innovating in this way and companies like cost plus drugs like mark cuban's company i was thinking about this because i we're expanding into like our consulting practice into europe and i'm learning a lot about healthcare overseas which is from you know england and to france to india and i was having a conversation about healthcare in india today a lot of amazing doctors right in some of the major cities and in india the patient owns their data, right? Like they have it, they bring it with them wherever they go. They give it to the doctor. The doctor does the procedure. They give them the data that they add to their like patient file. Now the patient is responsible for it, right? So that onus is on them to have and hold that data, but they own it. And it takes away that hierarchical relationship between the doctor and the patient. And then the the consumer can go and this doctor who has five stars and really beautiful luxury facilities and yada, yada, yada might charge four grand where this doctor who's more mid-tier and has mid-tier facilities might charge two grand. And it's just like any other consumer-driven service. I didn't know that, honestly, because I wasn't familiar with the healthcare system in India until being educated on that today. And I'm planning on going out there in a couple of months. It's just so crazy. There's so much work to be done here in the States. And I think it's a big advantage that Fred and I have grew up in the UK and have seen in the system. It's not the system we want to rebuild here, but at least we're coming here understanding that this is not the only way that healthcare can work. And it's worth having that understanding about how many different systems around the around the world work and what might work and what wouldn't work in the US. I think that's really important. I think the second really important thing that Curative has done or the advantage we have is our employees, the majority of them are on our health plan. And so we have this really powerful feedback loop. When people have a terrible experience, they're really empowered to be like, I am most informed about this and I'm really motivated to fix it. And I really understand like having both the internal and the external view of the experience the members are having. And I think that's been really, really powerful because they understand our problem and then are empowered to make some changes to manage this problem. Yeah, you eat your own dog food, so to speak. How about, I mean, clearly you came up in data science and, and that sort of thing. I'm sure you guys are leveraging a lot of that experience today. 
what are some of the most innovative things you guys are leveraging to support the business vision of Curative? Anything you could share with us on that are on the roadmap for the future? Now, this is one of the things I think we really benefited through growing very rapidly in COVID. In order to, we were obsessed with turnaround time on our COVID testing because we always thought that is a huge part. It's one of the biggest measurable parts of the, of the patient experience. And so we really wanted to keep 95% of the samples going through the lab in you know, under 12 hours. It was like we were obsessive about tracking that metric. And there are a bunch of metrics that are leading and lagging metrics around that. And we built this habit of building a data system that would tell you up to this minute where the organization's at, where are all the samples, where are the bottlenecks, and have very fast feedback loop so that we would see problems building today. We could get ahead of them so it didn't get worse tomorrow. And that meant often when you work with vendors, they'll give you like a flat file every day. And we just built this expectation that it's like, it's five minutes or less that we're getting data from you. Like, it's no good you telling me 24 hours later as my shipping partner where all our packages are. Because if you are a day delayed getting packages to our lab, and then our lab has twice the volume to get through today, because it's doing yesterday's and today's, that will crush the lab and destroy turnaround time for the rest of the week. And so we became obsessed with fast data from all of our data sources. And that meant when you're hiring really fast, you need to be feeding like headcount and shifts and who's working where every sample was up to the second through all the processes. And that's one of the values of building our brain systems. We had really detailed data. But even with external systems, you can replicate the database in. So we have a read-only version or systems like Fivetran will stream changes in. So learning that business practice, as well as the stack that supports it, was really, really important. So making sure that every vendor we work with, we have a way to stream, change, stream data very fast from them. Right now, we put that into Snowflake. Use Looker on top of that for viewing it with DBT for the data models. And the whole business is trained around, if I have a source of data, I need to get that into Snowflake. If I have a question, go to the data team and they can help me look at it. And it's not a question of like looking at a single data source. It's more like, how can I look across all our data sources to get to an answer? And it also has really good, you know, I think there's really powerful permissioning models there that have enabled us to connect across lots of systems and generate views that are appropriate for the, the consumer there. So, you know, you're not leaking information to groups that shouldn't have it. I think we've built that infrastructure and that muscle a lot sooner than many companies do. We had to have it first getting COVID testing and COVID vaccinations. And I think we're a small plan now, so obviously we get less data every day, but every week we want to see certain metrics and the way that they're trending. And it's really powerful because in healthcare, everything's really segmented. And so having a central data lake pulls it all together. We can see what happened within our pharmacy and our pharmacy claim system, in our medical claim system, in our portal, and our member services, and you can tie all events together between a, a member phone call and their prescription, and then getting a rejected claim because their prescription was sent to the wrong pharmacy. And so you can build tools that empower, not just track trends over time, but you can build tools that give our care navigators some predictive analytics. Those are really, really powerful. And also tools that just tell you exactly what is going on with a member. So when they answer the phone, 
you're not saying, tell me your problem. You're saying, I see you just got a prescription rejected, or I see that you've been struggling to register for your base members. It's about empowering people to have a much, to use the data we have to deliver personalized services to our, to our members. So I think that's the big hack. I think it's the building a data lake and empowering a lot of the business to depend on that. So Isaac, we're getting towards the end here. A couple of last questions I'd have for you. What do you think will be some of the biggest changes in the healthcare industry in general or in the payer space over the course of the next number of years? I would like to say that we have a third option between HMOs, PPOs with high deductibles. We add a concept of a broad network that stretched across the US with low or no cost sharing, and that we incentivize payers to be invested for the long term in the outcomes of their members. I think that's a change that if Curative can show this model works, there will be copycats. And I think that could be quite big. I would love it if we were able to really convince people that this is the model. So I hope that's the change. Me too. All right, last question. So Isaac, normally I ask if you could go back five or 10 years in time, what advice would you give your younger self? I think I've given a couple of lessons around fell fast, you know, be nice and, and try and build relationships with everyone you meet. I think those are big things. And I think the biggest one would be to finish my PhD much faster and get into industry and actually learn some things about the real world there. Very good. Isaac, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on today. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you very much, David. It's been great. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. We will catch you all next week. Be well. Thank you for listening to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net.